On episode 282 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to win singles matches with Jonathan Stokey. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of the show. Always happy to have you listening. And today's episode is with Coach Jonathan Stokey. If you may remember, I had Jonathan on episodes 240 and 241. It was a really great and insightful two-parter, so definitely check that out if you want to learn more about how to win uh, and formulate singles and double strategy. But today, Jonathan and I dive pretty deep into how to win more singles matches. Uh, We talk about things like how different grips factor into your strategy, how to hide weaknesses, um, how to beat several different types of uh, player profiles and much more. So I think you'll really enjoy this one. And if you haven't heard of Jonathan, uh, first off, listen to those other episodes I mentioned, but Jonathan hosts the Baseline Intelligence Podcast, which is a great show that I listen to. He spent 14 years as both a student athlete and coach with the Duke Men's National Tennis Program, or excuse me, college tennis program. Um, He's a former All-American and two-time All-ACC pick. And uh, he was also named the ITA Carolina Region Assistant Coach of the Year. Um, He has instructed many, many highly ranked junior players at the Smith Stearns Tennis Academy in South Carolina. And he helped Duke to two ACC championship titles and was named the ACC Tournament MVP in 2006. Jonathan also played in four consecutive NCAA championship tournaments, advancing to the round of 16 three times, posting a 93 and 59 overall singles record and a 113 and 47 doubles mark as well. So yeah, a lot of great success with Jonathan uh, in his career. And now he's a fantastic coach and he posts a lot of great content on Instagram among other platforms. So with that, I Really hope that you enjoy our conversation about singles strategy. If you're a singles player or if you're a doubles player and you want to get better with formulating singles strategy, then this is the episode for you. So without further ado, here's my interview with Coach Jonathan Stokey. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. It's really a pleasure to bring back Jonathan Stokey on the podcast. Uh, We spoke, um, I think, a few months ago, episode like 241. or We actually did a two-parter. We were chatting before I hit the record button and really had a great time with you, Jonathan. And I'm just happy to have you back. Uh, You're a great coach, and I'm looking forward to talking about uh, single strategy with you today. So how have you been? I've been great, man. Just got off the court and there's nowhere I'd rather be on a Tuesday night than talking tennis with you. 
Oh, wow. It's a big, big honor, man. I'm sure there's some other more fun things you could be doing, but I really do appreciate your time and expertise. So yeah, I guess we'll just launch right into it. I mean, I've, I've always played, you know, singles all my life and it's a, you know, huge part of juniors. I probably played, you know, probably like one competitive doubles match, you know, when I was a kid and it was all singles. So I'm, I'm a singles player at heart. Um, but so I guess to start off, like when a when a player, say like an amateur club level player, you know, our audience here is probably mostly like three zero to four five with some five zero plus players. When we want to formulate single strategy, what's like the first step that players should take to to start thinking about or formulating that strategy? I think the first step, and and definitely, it's harder than it sounds, but you have to figure out what you can actually do. So. What am I capable of doing? There's a ton of tactics out there. There's a servant volleyer, there's a counter puncher, but you have to be very honest with yourself and, and as detailed as possible. So you can't just say, hey, I know I have a good forehand. It's do I have a good inside out forehand? Do I have a good running forehand? Do I have a good serve plus one forehand? It's not just do I have a good serve? It's what is my serve? Is it because it's so consistent? Is it my location? Is it the speed? And so once you have a really good idea what you're capable of doing, you can start kind of formulating and looking at all the different tactics that you can use that accentuate your strengths and then minimize the weaknesses. But I'm always stunned when I see a player for the first time or honestly, even players that I've coached for a while. And I just throw them the, hey, what do you do well? Like, why do you win? And how few people can answer that question with the detail necessary to like really generate the tactic that's best for them. Yeah, great stuff, John. So when let's say like a player, they they have a good cross court forehand, but they don't have a good inside out. So then, like, what's the next step in the process? Like, we avoid hitting inside out forehands, or is it only if it's more you know really comfortable for us to hit it? Or how do you approach that once we identify these things? Right. So you have the strength of the cross court forehand, and maybe the weakness for you of I don't really I'm not very consistent with my inside out. So actually, I'll give you an example for me. When I was a player, I loved the ball low with topspin. Uh, to my forehand side. Mm. So anything waist high, I could crack it. But if someone sliced it to me or hit a high heavy, I really didn't enjoy that. So for me, it was just an mm -hmm. automatic. If you slice or hit high to me, I just rolled it back in play. And obviously mm. in practice, I'm going to try to develop that so that I don't have that hole in my game. But I think just the most simple thing to do is when you get that inside out forehand, of course you have to hit it sometimes. But if you know that's not a strength of yours and you're not great at it, then just try a simpler shot. Hit a little bit slower than you think you should. Give yourself a couple more feet in from the sideline. Add a little spin. And in the match, that's the best you can do. And then you go back to the practice court with your coach or whoever it may be. And you go, hey, I got to get that inside out up to the level of my cross court forehand. Because um, there's, you know, you're going to have to hit all the shots. You can't just hit an entire match of cross court forehands if you're playing an opponent with any sort of brain. They're going to figure that out. Um, but in the moment, I would just try a simpler shot, realize it's a weakness or at least not a strength for you and kind of go from there. So when I have like partners or even myself, like when we face like, let's say big kick serves or even the scenarios that you mentioned where you, you know, you, you face an uncomfortable ball up high or down low. I guess there's usually like a couple of choices presented. Generally, it's like you you back up and you let the ball drop, or you move forward and and then try to get it in your strike zone. So, like, is there one you know particular one that you uh, lean towards, or like how do you kind of determine like whether to do that? Because sometimes that's confusing as well. You're saying taking a kick serve early versus like hanging back and kind of hitting a heavy ball. 
Yeah. So yeah, or even like with your shots too, like you know, like a high forehand, like maybe you back off, or do you like try to meet it, you know, lower or something like that? So yeah, same question. So every, almost every answer here is going to be it depends, right? So it depends on the serve coming to me. So if that person has a really good second serve that's fast and they can move it all over the box, they can serve T and they can serve wide. I'm probably going to hang back because if I take it early, I've got to react. I've got to switch my grip. And I better hit that return well, or else now I'm in the middle of the court and I'm on defense. That's not where I want to be. If they have a slower serve, I am for sure going to step up and take that early, give it a mm -hmm. rip and look for a second ball to attack or maybe even follow that in. So again, you take, you take account, what am I good at already? And then you go, what kind of serve am I going against? Maybe you're not someone who likes to take it early, but if their second serve is so slow, that might be the best tactic for that particular match. So it, a lot of it depends on the serve and kind of what you're feeling on that particular day. So there's kind of a selfish question, Jonathan, but I think it applies to like a lot, a decent amount of players as well. So like, but you know, my, my foreign grip is like somewhere between like a semi-Western and a Western. And um, sometimes I have trouble with players, say right-handers like on the do side and they can hit like pretty good slice serves. So a lot of times I find myself like wanting to do like um, the buggy whip, you know, like the Nadal foreign type of thing. But it, it's it's really, you know, it's tough when it's like low like that. Like, do you have any advice on that? I mean, do, do we just want to chip that or like, you know, I don't know, shorten the swing? Like, what do you, how do you counter that? That's like really good slice serve. Right. So first of all, there's nothing wrong with chipping. You know, a return in play for me is always an A. And then if you return it with any depth, fine, it's an A plus. But if you can chip it in, mm -hmm. That's not the end of the world. Uh, what I would say is I would always adjust with my positioning. So if me getting stretched wide and low is tough, you better believe before you serve, I'm going to be one step over to my right and maybe one step up. And I'm going to go, hey, serve me T if you want. You know, most people can't spot it within six inches of the line anyway. Uh, so I'm going to try to eliminate as many of those opportunities as possible. But the pre-return pre positioning is huge. I used to feel like, based on where you stand, you're like the puppet master, right? You're just telling the opponent where I want you to serve. I'm going to stand over here. Yeah. And now you have to serve T against me. It's a great feeling when you kind of start telling them what they're going to do. So yeah, take a step over, move through it a little more. But at the end of the day, if you have to start chipping, that's, I did that in college at line one at Duke university. That's not the end of the world. Yeah. No, obviously as we've talked about, you know, great career that you've, you've had and continue to have with coaching now. Um, yeah, I used to do like the opposite thing in terms of like, um, uh, making the, the opponent like serve where I wanted to, where I would love it if they had like a really good, like kick serve to the backhand, let's say, uh, or a decent one, I guess I would say like, um, on the do side, I would actually like stand, you know, a step or two to the left and like bait them to hit to my forehand. So it's kind of the opposite approach. And I had my partner, you know, do that a, a few times and that worked pretty well. So I, you know, I think, uh, it's pretty important and, and you change the look as well. And then, uh, sometimes it gets into their head and, and, you know, they, they start missing things like that. So that's, that's, you know, very good. <laughs> yeah. No question. I was talking to another coach today, uh, on the court and we were saying like, obviously the, the, if someone was serving great against you, the worst thing you could tell them is go like, Hey, what are you doing so well today? Like, what are you thinking about? But another way to do that without actually saying it is just with your positioning. Right. So like mm. just by positioning, I'm already making them use their conscious mind and go, why is he standing there? What does he want? me? Oh, he thinks I'm serving well over here. I'm accomplishing the same thing just with my body position before the return. Instead of having to be that jerk who goes over and tries to say something like, man, you're playing great today or, or whatever it may be. I'm accomplishing the same thing just with my positioning.
Ah, uh, yeah, I, I like that um, the parallel there. Yeah, because definitely, um, I forgot where I read that as, as you were discussing with the coach that like sometimes if somebody is like on fire with like their forehand or their serve, then you tell them like, "Wow, you, you're not missing your forehand at all," and then like all of a sudden they start missing. It's just it, it's classic. Once they so engage their uh, once they engage their conscious mind, it's over. It's done. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I I don't know. I I don't. Yeah, like you mentioned, like I don't really like doing that. I, but you know, some people. Do. I'm not. I'm not advocating. Um, I'm not advocating yeah. for it. But with your return <laughs> positioning, I guarantee you get them yeah. thinking with just where you're standing, and that's a great thing for you as a returner. That is the classy way to do it. You know, just with the the positioning instead of saying. There you like go. It. Yeah, yeah. So I guess you know, trying to keep things flowy. Like, uh, let's talk about like return strategy and singles now. What's your general thought process in terms of like, you know, where to hit the return? I mean, you know, you can cover like speed, spin, like depth, like angle, things like that. Like, how do you go about um, deciding, you know, how to uh, execute that? So on a first serve return, whether it's my lowest ranked, lowest level player I work with or the highest ranked, it's deep middle. And mm -hmm. our whole goal is, can we get that return and play as often as possible? I think 80, depending on the level, but around 85% or better is awesome. Mm -hmm. If you go deep middle, you eliminate the angles from your opponent on that first ball. So you don't have to run as much. Um, and if you actually do get the deep part of that, there's a chance you can get a short ball. So first serve is, is so simple. It's just always deep middle over and over and over again. And your whole job is to make that server hold with no free points. You know, a lot of times when someone holds against you, you've given them at least one return, if not two, and they only have to win two other points the hard way. I want that person winning four over and over and over again. The second serve, I'm a big believer in this, and most of the coaches on my podcast have talked about this as well. It's if it's attackable, you attack it. And so you could, you could just sit back and roll every second serve return in, but depending on the quality of that serve, you might want to take it up. And if you're still only making 80, 85%, but you're ripping them deep middle, or even maybe slightly off center. Now you might be winning, you know, 55, 60% of those second serve return points. So one of them is more neutralizing the first serve return. You're more neutralizing second serve. You're in attack mode. And then in the match, you just have to weigh is the risk worth the reward? Am I making enough big second serve returns to justify going after it? Because if you're missing too much, now you're back in that problem of giving them free points. So that's where you have to kind of use your own head and evaluate the match as it goes on. Yeah, it's it, when you when you attack that second serve. I mean, and you're successful too. Like you put a lot of pressure on the server, and you know, then when they have another second serve, sometimes they try to go bigger and they miss and things like that. It kind of makes me think about the World Cup. You know, I don't know if, how much you've been watching, Jonathan, but a lot of wild games. But, you know, some like when the opponent has the ball, uh, you know, on the defense and then you have like the offensive players like press them, you know, run towards them. Like sometimes it like yields uh, some errors on occasion. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of the same, you know concept to some degree, I guess. But, um, so in terms of the first serve, I mean, the first serve is so tough, you know, I'm, when I play league matches, especially like indoors, like I'm facing some big, big servers and it's hard to be consistent with it. So what tips do you have to try to get to that, like 80 to 85%, you know, um, deep down the middle return, uh, percentage back, you know, when you're facing, uh, tough servers, especially. So the first thing I would say is if, if I go against a big server, I need to find out what their favorite serves are. And most good servers can serve to all four locations, or if you're including body, all six locations, but they have a favorite. So when, when was the last match you played actually? 
Uh, last match I played was, oh, it was um, Saturday morning. Okay, so Saturday yeah. morning, did you go out and on your first serve point, did you try your worst serve? <laughs> no. Exactly. <laughs> so when I'm playing a good server, like the first point they serve in the deuce court, whether it's wide or T, I'm already going, okay, well, most people probably don't want to start a match off with their least favorite serve. So I'm already, my antenna's mm -hmm. going off, deuce and ad court. And then the first break point right away, I'm going, okay, it's, it's deuce, 4-4 uh, four, four deuce. And he served me tea. Okay, that's probably a yeah. very good indicator. So I'm going to make that guy serve with his second best serve on big points and as much as often or as much as possible, right? Mm -hmm. So that is how I'm going to figure out what he likes to do. Um, if it's a great serve, you probably want to take a step back, give yourself more time. You see all the pro players doing it. That's not a problem. And if you get the return and play more because you have more time to react, excellent. And then maybe one mm -hmm. technical thing and I see this quite a bit, is once I see that it's a forehand or a backhand return, get that racket back right away as quickly mm -hmm. as you can. And you can do hand toss drills. You can do little reflex exercises. I see some people, maybe they're just thinking too much and it's a little slow take back. Once you know where it is, as fast as you can, get yourself set. And then you have a good chance to make contact out in front and be a little more consistent. Got it. Yeah, that's great advice, obviously. And and when you talk about getting the racket back as soon as possible, like, I mean, I guess is that, are you still like emphasizing like the, the unit turn type of turn or do you just, does it matter as much? Like, you know, just get the, the racket back, like with the arm, like. It's the, a, it's a unit turn, but it's also a much shorter swing, okay. right? Like you're not, you know, taking some huge yeah. wind up on someone's first serve, yeah. but you also don't want to just literally stick your arm out either way. So it's just a much shorter motion. Um, but again, that's where if you take that step back, you might actually have time where you feel like you can take a slightly bigger cut at it and not get laid or not not make yourself inconsistent. Yeah, certainly, you know, we're not all Medvedev with the amazing timing. And I forget, you know, how he does his take back on returns, like um, it's probably still huge. But, you know, I, I videoed myself, which is, you know, big proponent. We both are videoing yourself. And like I, I, re I saw myself returning and I was like taking these like big swings, you know, on my forehand, especially. And so, yeah, that's one thing for sure, you know, to make it easier on yourself, just have that shorter uh, unit turn take back. Um, well, I think it's also yeah. important, like I said, if you know what you're trying to do. So on the first serve return, if you go, my goal is to be consistent and hit it down the middle. So I don't hear a lot of offensive talk there. So why, how does a, yeah. how does a big swing help me accomplish that goal? You know, and you go, okay, well, it doesn't even sure. make sense what I'm trying to do there. So lining up the technique with the tactic for sure. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Love that. And so in terms of like uh, different grips, like when you're playing opponents, like how do you, what, what's your thought process there? Because I mean, obviously, you know, you can take advantage of um, certain opponents depending on, on their grip. Yeah, I think it's tough. I don't know about you, but that was something I wasn't as aware of when I was playing. Obviously, as a coach, mm -hmm. I, I don't have to watch the ball so I can look at the opponent and go, oh, man, they've got this extreme grip. But I just used to look for things that gave them trouble. So you said it, you're close to a Western, you're a semi-Western. So, oh, when he's stretched out wide and when it's low, he struggles. That's something I would have yeah. picked up on. I don't know that the time when I was 14 years old, I would have said, oh, he's got a Western grip. But I would have noticed what you struggle with or someone with an extreme Eastern forehand grip. Oh, man, they hate the ball up high. Okay. Like I, I kind of figured that one out too. So I think it can be a little challenging for the recreational player to be looking at those types of things and, and deciding what the grip is. But I think the height of the ball is a pretty good indicator of what type of grip you have. If you struggle with low balls, it's probably closer to that extreme Western and you're struggling with the high balls is probably more that extreme Eastern. But 
you know, I've seen a little bit of everything, but just paying attention to what they like and don't like is probably the key. Yeah. And you talk about like um, strategy as a junior. I, I felt like I was completely brainless. Like I didn't really think about any strategy. Maybe like the, the tip top of the iceberg was like, oh, this person has a bad backhand. Let me hit there. But otherwise, it was just like, at least for me, especially like as a, you know, uh, consistent baseliner, uh, just just getting the ball back um, pretty much and then finding the forehand. So uh, I just really wish I, you know, had that acumen when I was younger. But, you know, it's like most players. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, from what I see on a daily basis, you are not alone in that you play without your brain. <laughs> people people could do a much yeah, better yeah. job with that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if I had a, a coach like yourself, I'm sure I would have been uh, thinking about that a, a lot more. Of course. There you so, go. Uh, may, maybe next lifetime. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, good stuff. So, uh, you know, one thing as well uh, I'm curious about, like uh, when I when I interviewed, um, you know, some pros, uh, I, I remember a few of them saying like, well, I don't really pay attention so much to my opponent. I just try to take care of like... So, so when they're formulating the strategy, they're like, I just try to think about my game and just go from there. So like, um, wh what do you think's more important? Like focusing on your own strengths and weaknesses or the opponents? Like is, does one, should one take precedence over the other? I mean, certainly, you know, you want to think about both, I would think, but like, is one more important than the other? Again, I think it depends. So if I was playing, uh, I have no idea what I'm rated right now, but if I was playing a 4-0 singles player, I would assume I'm in a great position to crush them, right? And so I don't yes. think I have to spend a ton of time wondering what they do or don't do well. I go, if I do my things well, I can't lose, right? If I'm playing someone my level, I probably have to mm -hmm. do both. Right. So I got to know what I'm doing well, but also go, how does that match up? Oh, he doesn't like his, his wide backhand or he hates coming to the net or he doesn't like to serve. I definitely have to be aware of both. And then if I'm playing someone better than me, significantly better, my whole goal is to bring them down to my level. So now my, uh, most of my focus is on them. How do I make them have the worst day of their life? Not how do I get myself to have the best day of my life? And so based on that level of opponent, my focus kind of shifts more. It's kind of like a sliding scale more on me versus them. But the better the player, the more I'm trying to bring them down to my level. And if I'm playing someone I'm much better than, I am just probably focused on myself. Well, what's a um, you know, match that you remember, or I guess to rephrase, like, how, can you give us an example of like a match that you played where you were able to make the you know, make the opponent have like the, I guess the worst day of his life. I forget how you put it exactly, but you know, like torture him in terms of like strategy. Like, is there, is there one match that comes to mind for you? I mean, it, it falls naturally in line with what I do well, but I was a servant volleyer and I was, my, my kind of philosophy was three balls or less. I, I want to finish you in three mm -hmm. balls or less. And so there's a lot of ground strokers out there who crave a rhythm. And I would go, cool. Yes. You like a rhythm? Not going to get one today, buddy. Like I'm going to slap balls. I am going to slice balls. I'm going to charge the net. It's going to feel like a different sport. Um, honestly, like I said, because that was kind of my style, there are a lot of college guys who would out loud say, this is not tennis. And I, that's when I knew I had it. I was like, yeah, it sure is. And by the way, you're losing at it, buddy. Like, so that was something I always did was short, quick points. We're playing my style, not yours. I'm comfortable with the style. You're not, you want the rhythm. You don't get to hit two balls the same way in a row. Um, and people hated that. It just came down, honestly, to winning or losing that match would always come down to kind of the serve return. But that was something I always did. And like I said, it was something I enjoyed anyway. 
but there were a lot of players in in college tennis who absolutely hated playing me. Yeah, I can imagine. It, it's pretty hilarious. Like when you said how um you know the whoever it was said that like certain volley is not tennis because I got this opposite comment. But, you know, more commonly where, you know, I was like hitting moon balls to somebody who hated it and they said that's not tennis. So you got the totally opposite approach of Sir Valley and somehow that's not tennis. People Um, people like to say it's not tennis when they're losing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, Ego trip, I guess. And that that reminds me, you know, one of the, I guess the top player actually during maybe like the 16s and 14s, probably other age groups, to be honest, was uh, Joey Addis. I forget if we talked about him, but he went to Duke as well. Yeah. And, you know, he was a certain volleyer. I remember playing him indoors and just, you know, I'm a baseliner. He gave me zero rhythm. I lost like one and two or something like that. You know, it was, it was rough. So we, we um, made all, just, you know, we made all, example. yeah, we made all American together and my senior, oh, my senior sick. year at Duke. Yeah. We were doubles partners and that was part of the deal, right? We both had good serves. We're both <laughs> taking cuts and we wanted people in doubles to just feel like they were reacting the whole match. They're reacting to mm-hmm. us. We are telling them what's going to happen. And hopefully our shots were good enough to get it done in which most of the time they were, but yeah, he was a great player. And, yeah. and that was kind of our doubles philosophy. Sick. Yeah. I forgot that you guys play together. That is so cool. Um, yeah, really nice guy as well. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, obviously a lot of us have, um, you know, weaknesses like, so let's take the example of like, uh, maybe to make it more concrete, like a four or five player, um, who has like a weak backhand. So very common. So how would you, um, advise this player to 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 be able to like minimize or hide their weakness if possible like yeah as much as they can so that they can utilize their other strengths when when you say a weak backhand do you mean inconsistent or do you mean just like there's nothing on the ball uh yeah that is see yeah you got to go to the particulars so i guess in this particular example uh inconsistent so you know once the person hits like you know, two in a row, like it's getting dicey. They might miss a third one. Right. So again, going back to kind of like my forehand example, let's say my forehand's not a great shot. Okay. I'm going to hit that at a speed that I know I can make it at. Right. And that might be much slower than my ego wants to allow, but I go, anyone out there can really make a backhand, even if their backhand's weak, if you hit it slow enough, the fear is, oh, but they'll crush it. So what else do people hate on the ball? that comes to them. Most of them don't like a ball out of their strike zone. So I go, man, if I just hit high, slow cross court on the ball that I hate, at least I've made it. The odds of this four or five player coming up and smacking that for a winner for two sets is essentially zero. They can do it sometimes, but I know they're not going to like that. So number one is just take pace off, add height and check your ego. Like you don't have to rip every ball out there. I promise you people will not take that ball it doesn't happen in college. It didn't happen at high level in college. Make the ball with some height and you're in good shape. The only other thing with that backhand example in particular is most people like to hit cross court. So if I really want to get you to hit to my forehand, I'll probably feel that ball high, slow down the line and see if I can get you to hit mm-hmm. your forehand cross court back to me. Um, but sometimes, you yeah. know, based on the strength of their serve or their return, they might have the upper hand and they might pound your backhand a couple times. And my whole goal was, I want you to hit a winner on me, right? Like, I don't want to mm. just give you that point. So if you're going to my weakness and I roll one in and you hit a winner, I actually, I don't know. How many, how many great shots do you think you hit in a match? You personally. Oh, you mean like, like a volume of like winners? Yeah, you mean? Just, just, just like just, great winners. You walk off the court at the end of two sets and you go, man, I, I think I probably hit like 40 great shots. Like, what do you think your number is? 
Oh, no. No. Maybe, like, on average? I don't know, like two? <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 I mean, you probably hit more than that, but but my, my whole thinking was, let's say I just roll my backhand in high cross court. And let's say you uh-huh. actually did step up and you hit a great ball in the corner, I tracked it down, and then you hit a winner. My mentality was, I just used up two of your 20 shots. And you only won one point on it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you could right. hit, if you could hit fifty awesome shots, you'd be a five zero. But you're not, so I know you can't do it. And so there's no shame in losing a point because I hit the ball a little too slow, and they cracked a winner. That is not a concern for me. So again, taking pace off, being more consistent, and then maybe floating that backhand line to get them to hit a forehand cross back to you. Yeah, no, I like that idea of kind of like them having like a certain, you know, finite amount of like winners that they can hit. And like, you know, that goes as well, you know, like players like Dago Schwartzman or whoever else, like um, also like the, you know, the more fit you are and the more consistent you are and you can get some of those, you know, winners back, like it's very frustrating. And then it kind of depletes their good shot, you know, repertoire, if you will. And and yeah, so that that definitely helps. Um, kind of random there, but yeah. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Uh, let's see. I've got a kind of a list of like different types of players that I'm, I'm wondering if you, you know, you could maybe lay out like just some like general strategy, um, for the audience. Cause obviously, you know, I picked like the ones that we play the most, including your type as well. But, uh, I guess we'll go with the, um, maybe I'll use a nicer moniker, like the, you know, ultra consistent player who like never attacks the ball you know they just get the ball back not really you know too much pace generally although i guess you know it depends on the level obviously um but how do you generally play these super consistent types of players were you trying to avoid using the p word right there yeah i don't know why because i've said it before (laughs) but for some reason (laughs) yeah so super consistent player right so that's a challenge right because we know the game is about errors and if they're really consistent that's an issue. And especially if your shots can't generate short balls, that's also an issue because now it's very tough to attack this person. Um, going back yeah. to your question about, are you focused on yourself or them? I think one of the questions you got to ask is what style does this player not want to play? So their whole game is being consistent. Most of the time they don't want to be the person attacking, right? They've won mm-hmm. their whole life on you overplaying. So, you know, the goal would be maybe on your first serve and maybe on your second serve, you can generate short balls and then you can come to the net and that's great. But if you don't have that opportunity, I would just switch my mindset and go, hey, I don't mind drop shotting them. I don't mind giving them short balls because now at least I have them playing with their second best game plan and I'm making them a little uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, if you are the same level as someone and they make more balls than you, you're in for a really tough day. Yeah, 100%. So... Let me take a crack at the servant volleyer. Um, just to, you can grade me here. So I guess um, 
against a certain volleyer, um, make a lot of make a lot of returns. Ideally, you know, like low, you can chip low, things like that. Um, just just make them hit as many volleys as possible, and then you know, otherwise, like if you're serving, try to just hit a lot of you know deep. It's just it's kind of a standard strategy for a lot of play against a lot of players, but hit you know a lot of deep balls and try to prevent them from coming to the net. Uh, anything you would add or just edit or just throw away with that strategy? So just like you said, as a servant volleyer, I really struggled when I didn't get free points. So even if it was a high volley, okay. I was like, man, I got to hit another volley winner. Like, like I said, I don't have 50 volley winners in me. So every time, like every time that <laughs> yeah. guy made me hit a first volley, second volley overhead, man, I had to hit three good shots just to win a point. That pressure builds over two, three sets. Um, you know, definitely what I said earlier about figuring out their best serve and and taking that away. Mm. And maybe the last thing, you know, on pro pro tour, you see a lot of guys serving volley uh, when the opponent is standing way behind the baseline because they can get super tight to the net and get a high volley. Mm. So if you are capable of returning closer to the baseline, take it early. That way that servant volley is hitting the ball from behind the service line. It's a defensive volley. And then maybe you kind of have the upper hand. Yeah, I love that that last one especially. Yeah, because I, I well, I remember doing this more in doubles to be honest. But like you know, against the server, you know, serving and volleying like every serve, like especially the second serve, like I'd move up, you know, shorten my swing and like crack a forehand, and they'd be you know volleying like behind the ba- the uh, service line. It was it was fantastic. Um, oh, actually, one question I forgot to ask you is you mentioned like you know when we're trying to um, minimize our weaknesses, like say the back end, you know, you like hit it at a pace that you can hit it with. Um, it uh, was one of the tips. Do, do you actually see that on the pro tour? Cause sometimes I feel like it looks like that, like say with, um, uh, who's it? Uh, curious or something or some others. Like, it seems like they're not really going full speed on that. They could be on their backhand in particular. So do you see that as well? I think they, the pro tour? yeah, I think they use their backhands as a shield and he's a, you know, he's a pretty extreme example, but he does that as well. Uh, the thing I always, you know, with the juniors at my club or whatever, when you see someone who's better than you play, when they take pace off the ball, it's still like, wow, what a great ball. But if you're at that level and you see it, you're like, oh, he's not really hitting it that big. He's just kind of massaging it around. And so sometimes when you're watching a pro, yes, I do think they do this, especially on key points sometimes if they have something that's not feeling good. But since they're taking pace off is still maybe 70 miles an hour, it's super impressive. <laughs> but they probably could have hit it 80 and they chose to hit it 70. And when you do it, it's... Instead of hitting 45, you're hitting 35 and you think that's so pathetic, but there's someone beneath your level who looks at that and thinks you're hitting a great ball too. So I definitely think it, think it happens, but it's almost like this illusion because they're so good at what they do that even their slow balls have quality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's that's a great point there. Good insight. Uh, how about like the all-court player? I mean, this one seems like pretty intimidating because like all-court implies it can do like a lot of things pretty well, but um, any <laughs> advice against the all-court player? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like this mysterious all-court player who has no holes, like you're, you're, you're kind of screwed, right? But, you know, the other thing I would say is like you're always paying attention to them. Everybody has holes. So man, they come to the net well mm-hmm. and they hit the ground strokes well. Okay, well, do they hit every single volley well? Because I know for mm-hmm. me, I was a great volleyer, but I loved low volleys. I actually hated high volleys. Oh, you! I hated. Wow, was what was that? My my, con- <laughs> my grip, tall. yeah, my grip was pretty extreme, so it was a little bit open on both sides. Uh, I would have gone back and and probably switched that a little bit. But so when I had a high ball, my strings were a little more see. open. 
And so it's ironic. Most people wouldn't think that, oh my God, I can't give Stokey a high volley. That was actually a high forehand volley was not what I wanted. Low backhand volley mm. was like my jam. That was where I was like, great. Oh wow! And so if you say, well, this person's all court, I guarantee they still have things they like to do more than the other. And you just have to try to make them yeah. play with their second or third best game plan. But again, this you know mysterious all-court player, if you're exactly the same level and you have a couple holes and they don't have many, another tough day at the office for sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, John. I'm curious about the, the you mentioned more open grip. So instead of like a true continental, was it like more towards like the Eastern side? Like No, it's the, the other right way. I, I'm not even sure what you call that, but you know, it wasn't, uh, it was more like to where I was almost more extreme on the backhand side of it. So I was, I was oh, rolled over wow. the other way. So now when I take my racket back straight, my strings were actually open and I had to work hard to close it, which was kind of awkward. Uh, now that I've learned a little bit more as a coach and like I can goof around as a, you know, when I'm volleying with the kids, I'm a little closer to an Eastern. I wouldn't say I'm a full Eastern on a forehand volley, but now I can flatten okay. these things out. Now I don't mind it, but now I don't play. So it's only, let's see, 17 years too late that I solved that riddle. Um, but yeah, I've moved it more over to the Eastern and then the high forehand volley is a much easier shot. Got it. Got it. Do you ever advise players? Uh, I feel like I might've heard some people do this, but do, do you ever have players like kind of like adjust their grip a little bit? Like I think I'm forgetting again, who said this, but like they mentioned like on their backhand, they actually turn it a bit more so that they have like kind of a stronger grip for that. So, I mean, I don't know. Is that something that you like, uh, advise? It, it's not something I teach. I think it's Vic Braden who was kind of saying if you have the Eastern forehand and then mm -hmm. you can slide it over to your backhand volley grip and you have the same amount of mm -hmm. time, right? Like you do it when you're returning serve. So it's not different at the net. If it's something you haven't done before, that can be super tricky. Uh, but <laughs> there are plenty of people who do it and they don't have a problem. I always thought it was easiest just to have my continental grip. I use it for the forehand, the backhand, the slice, the overhead. And it just, to me was just a little bit of a simpler process, but there are people out there that do it and they do it really well. So I think it's just one of those things, if you can start it at early age, there's no sweat, but I think you can be successful both ways. Yeah, it makes sense. So um, in terms of like mastering serves, uh, let's talk about the slice versus the top spin or, you know, I guess kick for a slightly more advanced version, obviously. If there was like one of these serves that you would advise a player, like, I don't know, three, five, four, a player that they like concentrate more on mastering? Like, is there one that you would pick for, you know, as the, you know, the top one and why? So, you know, I think it was Carlos Gaffi who said, you're, you're only as good as your second serve. But I, for mm. me, I, I want to have a top spin serve that I can make eight and a half out of 10 times that has enough mm. juice on it where I'm not going to get attacked. And if I know I've got that in my back pocket, when I walked up to a first serve, I'm like, hey, here's a chance for a free point. I'm going to go for it. And if I don't, I've got this great second serve in my back pocket. There's no stress. I find people with weak second serves, it affects their first serve because now they're scared to hit it, right? They've got to make so many first serves to protect the second. So I think everyone out there before you even kind of get going on the first is have a second serve you're confident in confident in that you feel like can't be attacked and that can show up under pressure. And then I would kind of move to the first serve. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I remember, um, have, you know, prior guests, they had mentioned that they thought that 
you know, maybe the slicer should be the one that the player should work on first, like, because it's like a little bit easier and whatnot. And I was a little surprised at the end. It made sense, obviously, but I was surprised at the end because in my mind, I was thinking like, oh, probably the top spinner kick, you know, more net clearance, things like that. But I guess you can somewhat, you know, fiddle around with the net clearance on the, the slicer, obviously, as well. So, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'd also, both answers make sense to me. Yeah. And I'd also like to think you can work on more than one serve at a time, right? So, like, just because I'm yeah. just because I'm prioritizing that topspin second serve, like I see what people say about, hey, if you get the you know toss out in front, slightly to the right, practice your slice. It's a high percentage first. I get that, and biomechanically, there's a there's a great argument for that. But realistically, you're going to be practicing all the serves at the same time. But if you head out at a match and you don't have a second serve, you are in trouble. So you better make sure you have yeah. that one buttoned up, nice and tight. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So this next question, I was trying to like formulate it and I didn't do a really good job, but I, I sh I'll try to now. So like, it, it seems like a lot of times, like, especially in like USA club level matches, you have like so many matches that, especially when they're like in, in like playoffs or whatever, like they always seem to go down to the third set tiebreaker, like every single time. And I was just trying to, from your perspective, like why, why does that happen do you think it's because like you know one side goes up then they get nervous and the other side like has a sense of urgency and then they like try their best while the other person's nervous and then they you know get close and then vice versa and keeps happening like i i don't know like is that does that make any sense like you have any idea why that happens all the time what, what why they all <laughs> what you're saying why they always split sets yeah it just seems like it always happens i mean <laughs> I, I know i'm like the most logical boring rational person ever but if you're playing someone your level <laughs> you're a Vulcan. exactly if you're playing someone your level <laughs> i'm like i don't know i mean why should i win two sets in a row like that that would be one answer is like hey mm. we're both pretty good it's tough to win two consecutive sets against someone who's exactly the same level as you right um yeah you yeah. know sometimes yeah sure people who are up get tight and people who are down kind of relax and go oh this might be over and they free up a little bit I could see that happening. And then I think there could be some bias there. I think maybe sometimes you just don't pay attention to some of the blowouts because the the close matches are so much more exciting yeah. that maybe that's not happening quite as much. But yeah, it could be for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, the second set letdown is like so common where someone wins a first yeah. set and they celebrate and throw themselves a party. And it's like, you've done nothing. Yeah. You've done nothing. Like it's a race to two and you got one and you're acting like this is, you're not even at like halftime yet. Like, Right. What are we, what are we celebrating here? Just yeah. keep working, keep keep getting down to business. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, uh, so so it was really cool. Uh, Brad Gilbert, who I you know, fortunately had on the podcast uh, a few episodes ago, but he he was giving a talk at Junior Tennis Champion Center in Maryland, and I, some of you may remember me talking about this, but um, you know, I I forget who asked him, but they said like, oh, what would you, what advice would you give? um francis uh, you know for for next time or what do you think he could have done differently like when he lost to alcaraz and then uh brad said you know honestly i feel like when he won that um was it the second set maybe uh or was it the third set i forget but either whatever set it was and his response was like yeah when he won that set like he celebrated way too too much in my opinion and he kind of like you know, you lose energy that way. And I remember in college, like having a teammate who was like, we were playing American and like, he was all pumped up and like, it was like the first game that he was like winning points and he was like going nuts. And then he ended up losing like one and one or something like that. And I've experienced that myself too, like where I played a league match and 
it was in the tie break. Like we, I won a, we won a big point at like six all to go up, up by one point. And I was like, lit out a big yell and then ended up losing like the next four points. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, some examples to kind of emphasize that, uh, tip that you gave in terms of like, uh, just not re- giving a release too too uh, early. Cause I feel like for a lot of people, you, you like kind of just lose focus and energy. I think there's a difference. I think there's a difference between getting excited and like literally relaxing and feeling like you've accomplished something. So if you win a huge point uh-huh. and you give a loud, come on, that gives you a little energy that maybe gets your opponent down, intimidates them a little bit. As long as you don't feel like right. you've already won the match, that's great. And then, like you said, you have to be aware after some loud come ons, there's probably naturally a little energy drop. So if you got all excited yeah. after a break point, let's say you broke him at four all 30, 40, and you let a loud come on, I'm going to go up and on the first point that I went on my next service game, I'm going to give myself a second one to make sure that I'm maintaining that. Mm. Um, And not all points are created equal. So if there's a little energy drop when you're down 40 love on their serve, that's not the end of the world. Um, But I think the biggest thing is feeling like you really accomplished something. Like I don't know any NBA team that goes in at halftime up 50 to 45. is like, hey guys, amazing. Like we're going to win this game for sure. Like that's essentially like winning the first (laughs) set. It's really not that big a deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's the second uh, set drop that you mentioned. any uh, any tips to refocus? I know this can probably apply to singles and doubles, but yeah, like when you get nervous and whatnot, like any particular tips that you give your students to help them refocus? It's just, I think just on a mental loop, that 15, 25 seconds in between points, you're just telling yourself how you're going to start the point. Whether you're down, whether you're up, whether you're happy with how you're playing, it's, hey, first serve return. I'm going deep middle. I'm looking for a forehand and I'm going to hit high to their backhand on the first chance I get. Okay, good. Now I'm in the present. I know what I'm trying to accomplish. It takes out all the time for me to think about how bad I'm playing or, or whatever else that's causing me to lose focus. I'm always planning my first two shots. And once you do that for a long time, I think you'll be stunned at how often you can correctly do those first two shots. It's exactly how you thought it would play out. I'm going to serve wide. Uh, you're going to catch the return late and I'm going to hit a backhand volley cross court. I mean, that used to happen all the time when I would think it. And I'm looking for it. Mm. So I'm prepared. It gets me in the present. I play better. So definitely planning those first two shots. Love that. Yeah, I, I try to do that, but I admittedly don't, you know, I forget sometimes. So uh, that's something I'm going to really try hard to uh, to do. So really appreciate you mentioning that. Um, any particular serve plus one patterns that you, that you really like uh, your students to try out? I mean, obviously, you know, there's all the data out there that says serve plus one forehand is great. Again, I would say it kind of goes specifically to the player. I have some players whose forehand cross court to the deuce is amazing. So I don't care if they serve mm-hmm. wide or a team the deuce. I'm like, hey, let's rip that first forehand behind them and get them playing defense with mm-hmm. their forehand, which some people don't do very well. Um, some people naturally have a better inside out and they can maybe use that. I think always trying to get that serve plus one forehand is probably a great thing. And I know some people out there say their backhand is more solid. But most people's forehand is the bigger weapon and has the most potential to be a bigger weapon. Um, so just sticking with that simple, simple tactic. Yeah, I love that. Love that. So yeah, we talked about uh, return strategies. So um, yeah, wow. So in terms of like, what what is like your top uh, single strategy tip? Like above everything, like if it's like something where you know all the listeners could just keep that in their head, like before and during their next singles match to to use. 
<laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Jeez. And, and this is so count. Like, again, if I could go back and change the type of player I was, there's so many things I would have changed. But I think a big theme for me is I think a lot of people overplay. Oh, I, I have to mm. get it so deep or they're going to hurt me or I have to hit it faster. If people played within themselves more, whatever the tactic was, and were okay and got a little more comfortable with people hitting a few more winners against them, right? Just a few. Like no one's going to hit 50 winners against you to win the two sets. So within yourself more and be confident and comfortable with that, I think everybody would perform better. The problem is if someone out there listens to that and they go, oh, cool, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to try that. And someone wins the first two games, they're going to go, it doesn't work. And I'd go, let's let that cook for two full sets and see if that person can keep it up. See if you don't develop a great rhythm by playing within yourself. And maybe you could even go for more later. Um, But I would say whatever tactic you do, playing within yourself is a huge key. Gotcha, gotcha. And I know you kind of, you know, by virtue of mentioning like the key tip, like you mentioned kind of reverse of that, what people, you know, kind of a mistake, but I was going to ask you as well, like if maybe a couple of the biggest um, single strategy, like mistakes that players make as well, if there's any others that you have in mind. Oh, I got a, I got a, you want a list of what loses matches? Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, hell, we could go to a, a part two here, but you know, like okay, missed returns, like I said, killer miss plus one balls killer right mm. uh missing wide in the net i mean everyone knows that like you need to give yourself a ton of margin there's not many yeah. shots that you hit so low over the net that impact your opponent you know use the height be consistent um one thing i hate is when let's say i'm playing you and you're in the deuce court what's the highest percentage shot for you you're hitting a forehand from the deuce what's the highest percentage shot you can hit there oh cross court um, forehand topspin. Exactly. Forehand topspin cross court. Now, if I let you hit that ball and you stretch me wide or even hit a winner, as a coach, I am pulling my hair out. I mean, if you are gonna mm. if you're gonna hurt me with a ball, you better be changing directions and going down the line and taking on some risk. So oftentimes mm. I see people recover too far to the middle, and I'm like, man, you just let them hit a winner on you and you let them do it with the easiest, smartest shot they could have tried. Like <laughs> let's let's yeah. try to find a way to let, let them stop doing that. Um, what else yeah. loses? Miss passing shots. Throw up a lob. Yeah. Make someone hit an overhead. I see so many terrible overheads every day. Make someone finish you. Yeah, you know, definitely. A vast yeah. majority of those net points are one off off miss passing shots. But like I said, I think I just nailed off four. If you if you gave me some time, it'd be like thirty four. But there's a lot of things that you can <laughs> maybe a future, future part two part two a future episode yeah. but you know there, there's a lot of things where i know it sounds kind of negative but to win more matches you can really just avoid losing so much you know i do all the you know so many players do all these things that lose matches let's just stop doing that before we even attempt to win the match um that that will help people tremendously yeah love those fantastic yeah just uh plug the leaks uh one by one um you've you've really done a great job jonathan with your with their uh baseline intelligence podcast saw some great guests uh come through um you got like a you know basically a 5.0 rating uh on there so a um, really great guests um is there and you've had john isner too at six so is there one um interview or sorry is there one piece of advice from any of your guests as well that has stuck out to you this doesn't have to necessarily be like um 
uh, single strategy related, but just something, you know, recently or whenever from a guest that uh, you found to be like a really good piece of advice. Maybe your listeners like said, hey, like this was really awesome uh, or you just liked it yourself. That's a great question. So there's actually, I'm doing like whatever. When it, I, I learned this from you, but I'm doing like a year end recap. So I've gone back and listened to all of them oh, nice. and, and try to figure out the things that I like the most. Uh, this one kind of ties yeah. in. We were talking about grips earlier, and this is just the thing that I thought was the coolest, but Michael Joyce, I can't remember. It was maybe episode 10, somewhere around there. And he was talking okay. about how when Maria Sharapova was playing Henan in the finals of the US Open, she had never beat her. And his dad, who was very into tennis at the time, kind of said, hey, you know, Henan's grip changes are so extreme that when you hit to her backhand, which was an amazing shot, the first time you hit there, she never goes after it because she's not quite comfortable with her mm -hmm. grip. So he said, you know, Maria should just go one to the forehand, one to the backhand, one to the forehand, one to the backhand. And that simple strategy, she beat her in straight sets in the US Open final. I think he said he beat her, she beat her five straight times after that. And he said, literally the game plan was like, we're just going to go one forehand, one backhand. And we're just going to make her switch grips the whole match so she never gets comfortable. And like, I thought that was number one, so cool that his dad is the one that kind of suggested it. But you're looking at all these things and they hit the ball so well. And you could go, man, what a simple strategy Sharapova had. And that kind of flipped the series. Before that, she couldn't beat her. After that, she couldn't lose to her. And all she did was alternate where she hit her ground strokes. That was just a super cool story for me to hear. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, just the power of strategy, you know, no technical changes need to be made. Um, just, just thinking for a bit and, and employing it, uh, with the tools you have. So love that. Definitely want everybody to check out the baseline intelligence, uh, podcast with Jonathan and, uh, we'll have a link to that. Obviously, Jonathan, um, any particular, um, you know, website, social media, you know, handles, anything like that you want to shout out for the listeners to check out? Because, you know, in particular, you have a lot of really great, um, you know, content on Instagram that I, I love to to watch all the time. A lot of great tips with your students and stuff. But yeah, any any uh, anything that you want to shout out? Yeah. So like I said, I just do the podcast and, and that's been a blast for me. But the at Stokey Tennis is my Instagram and I, I probably put out about like two, three videos a week. And honestly, it's probably going to turn a little more into tactical and, and talking type things. The first year or two was a little nice. more technical. Um, and I'm running out of good songs to put in the background. <laughs> so, so I got <laughs> so to do a little more talking on there. But um, yeah, just the at Soki Tennis and, and people DM me on there all the time asking for certain things they want to want to look into. And nice. um, yeah, basically the Instagram is the place you can find me. Awesome. Love that. And we'll link all that as well. Um, so, uh, I guess I'll, I'll still ask this question, um, which is a classic of at, at the end of my episode, which is, uh, and you've given us a lot of awesome tips today, obviously, but what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games? Wow. One tip for improvement. I'm sure they've heard yeah, it. I know you have like 8 billion, but <laughs> I mean, this is more general, but I think the biggest thing is patience. I mean, it was if it was really that easy, if I could come out and give you some drills for a palm down serve, I don't think people realize how long of a project that is. And if it doesn't feel good after a day or a week, they go, this isn't working. And it's like, man, it takes six months to work. And, you know, learning to hit to the right target, something as simple as that, 
might actually take you three, four months to get the discipline necessary to do that point after point. I think people are so impatient. I know I am with like my golf game. That's kind of like always what I equate the, <laughs> the, the four or five tennis mind of my golf game. And I'm like, man, I'm impatient too. And if you really want to get better at something, whether it's a tactic or a technique, you better be able to work hard and you better be able to work hard for a long period of time before you can expect serious improvement. Yeah. Yeah. Patience is key. You made me think randomly of uh, Gary Vaynerchuk where he's always like, patience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh man. What a guy. But anyways, uh, thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, again, for coming on to the show. And I think we're definitely going to do that, um, you know, 30 or whatever it is, mistakes part two, uh, you know, whatever it is episode in the near future. Always love talking to you and definitely learned a lot as usual. So really excited to implement uh, what I learned today. And I hope that the audience does as well. And um, yeah, I guess now it's off to my board meeting. Otherwise, I would have chatted with you uh, much longer, but we'll link up again for sure. So thanks a lot, Jonathan. Uh, All the best and everybody definitely check out uh, all the links that we have on the show notes page uh, and check out Jonathan's stuff uh, because he has a lot of great content out there that he's putting out, uh, putting a lot of hard yards to put that out for you all. Um, So yeah, thanks, Jonathan. And talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me, man. Blast as always. Thanks for sure. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Coach Jonathan Stokey. Jonathan, thanks again for coming on. And I'm sure we'll do our 50 singles mistakes or whatever episode we're planning to do uh, in uh, short order. Um, So yeah, looking forward to having you on again. And yeah, if you enjoyed this episode and if you feel like you got some good value from it, then I would really highly appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by going to tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts. Uh, Definitely would be great if you left a review on Apple Podcasts as that's the biggest driver of the show. But if not, uh, I definitely appreciate you know, review on any platform that you use to listen. And also want to leave you with a quote as I do at the end of every show. This one is by Richie Norton. And Richie said, every sunset is an opportunity to reset. Every sunrise begins with new eyes. Really love that quote. And yeah, uh, it's time for me to get ready and do a couple of prehab exercises for my calf and glutes. And then I'm going to go and have a nice uh, doubles, single slash doubles practice. And I'm actually testing out a new racket for me, the um, Wilson Blade version 8, 16 by 19 is probably what I'm going to test today. As as many of you know, I'm in the midst of a racket uh, demoing Bonanza. So I'll probably use that one, maybe the Piero 2023, and probably my own racket to just kind of compare again. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. I've got a huge episode for you coming up next week, which is going to be pretty much the the top takeaways from the podcast in 2022. So putting together uh, a lot of work, actually pretty much done with it to, to put that on for you so you can check out the best of this past year. All right, that's all for today. Have a great one, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is your host, Mirban Aranshad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.